This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to gather together this morning to study your word and to be refreshed by the eternal truths that we find here. Father, we pray you'd help us to understand the things that we study this morning, that we would be responsive to their challenge, that we would not take these things lightly, but we would recognize that this is your revelation, that you have uh, disclosed these things to us for a particular reason, that they are to provide an incentive motivation for living the Christian life today. Father, we pray that uh, for our nation also at this time, we pray for our president, we pray for our civilian, as well as uh, military leaders, that you would give them guidance, direction, and that in your uh, providential care of this nation, that you would continue to protect our borders from those who would seek to destroy us, and that you would also give those who are fighting in Iraq those who are seeking to bring peace and stability to that region, uh, the ability to do so. Father, give them wisdom and skill as they establish their strategy and their uh, tactics. Father, now as we study your word, we pray that we would uh, be challenged by these things, that we would respond to that challenge, apply these things consistently in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, John sees a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ walking in the midst of seven lampstands. This is described starting in verse 12, where he turns to look at the voice that speaks to him. And in the description of the Lord Jesus Christ, we see a picture of how Jesus Christ in his Priestly, high priestly ministry to the church is working in the midst of the church during the church age period. This is a unique time in history because of various factors. The individual believer is the focal point in the church age as opposed to a sort of spiritual elite as you had under Israel. You had a few who were indwelt or filled with the Holy Spirit. 
those who were responsible for leadership in the nation Israel and the theocratic nation. What we have in the church age is that every believer is indwelt by God the Holy Spirit, and every believer can be filled by the Holy Spirit when he's in fellowship, being filled by the Spirit with, with the Word of God. But there's a purpose to the spiritual life in the church age and the function of the church in the church age that goes beyond that of God's plan and purposes for uh, the Jewish believer in the dispensation of Israel. For the believer in the church age is part of the church, and it is that corporate body that is going to be his bride when he returns. Furthermore, scriptures teach that when he returns, we're going to rule and reign with him, and we are going to function as priests to God. Not only will there be a Jewish priesthood operational in the kingdom of Israel, in the millennial kingdom of Israel that the Messiah establishes and rules from the throne of David in Jerusalem, but there's also going to be this priesthood that functions from the church age, from resurrected believers. And how do we get to the place where we can function as judges over the angels, as 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6 tells us, do you not know that you will judge angels? And how do we get to the point where we can rule and reign with Christ? What's the training ground? And the training ground is here and now. It is in the church age. And all of this brings to bear uh, the importance of having a sound biblical ecclesiology. And ecclesiology is simply the technical theological term for the uh, study of the, what the Bible teaches about the church, about its nature, its purpose, its function, its operation, its organization, its leadership. All of those things come to bear in understanding ecclesiology. And you can have real problems in ecclesiology. You can create an isolationist ecclesiology where we have the truth, nobody else does, so we ignore everybody else and don't do have anything to do with anybody or listen to anybody else. And that's wrong. There's many, many uh, folks out there who are, well, we, we as a congregation may not agree 100% with every detail in their theology, uh, we can learn a lot from them, and there are a lot of things that uh, we can benefit from what being done, what's being done by other believers. Uh, that's why we have a doctrinal statement in the church. That sort of sets a parameter for understand, understanding these things. And not every pastor, even in doctrinal churches, not every pastor agrees on every detail. Uh, there's often interpretive differences, and there's a certain framework there that's that we all have to recognize that there are some, some differences. Uh, when you get into the broader mainstream evangelicalism, there may be even other differences. Uh, there's differences between those who are more Calvinistic and those who are less Calvinistic. There are differences between uh, those who are more emotional in their worship and put more of an emphasis on emotion or praise and worship or contemporary Christian worship, and uh, yet still have fairly sound theology. There are some that are uh, dispensational, some that are less dispensational. These are differences, but ultimately we're all part of the bride of Christ. And I'm not saying that we should have some sort of unity at the expense of doctrine, but there can still be a certain cooperativeness between certain groups where you do learn 
and can benefit from the work that some groups are doing. And even though that they, you don't necessarily agree with everything that's going on there. And all of that, of course, comes down to ecclesiology. Now, we see an element of ecclesiology here where Jesus Christ is the Son of Man, is clothed in a garment down to the feet, girded about the chest with a golden band, and, and all the imagery here, his eyes like a flame of fire that we studied last time, his feet like uh, fine brasses if refined in a furnace, uh, his voice like the sound of many waters, the sharp sword coming out of his mouth. All of these images p- picture him as uh, as a judge, as a judge walking in the midst of these seven congregations. Now, this pictures the fact that in the church age, Jesus Christ is actively involved in the sanctification and read purification process of the church. I'm not talking about positional sanctification, because at the instant of faith alone and Christ alone, we're all positionally sanctified. We enter into union with Christ, and we are positionally holy, positionally sanctified. That's what that word means from the Greek word hagios, which means to be set apart for him. It's positional. But in the process of the spiritual life and spiritual growth, we're growing and advancing in the spiritual life and towards maturity. Now, in the process of growth towards spiritual life, there are certain dynamics that come into play in terms of application in the Christian life. And let me just outline some of these. First of all, and this is in the order of importance. First of all, you have the emphasis on your own personal spiritual life. Your own personal spiritual life and spiritual growth. That is the first and foremost area of application. You need to be involved in personal Bible study, listening to tapes, reading your Bible on a regular basis, memorizing Scripture on a regular basis, being in Bible class, taking notes, reviewing those notes, thinking about the implications of these things, uh, the doctrines that are being taught in relationship to your own spiritual life and your own spiritual growth. Then there is an area of application that goes beyond that, to your more immediate spheres of life. For example, as you go through that process of experiential sanctification and purification in your own life, this is going to have results and consequences in terms of your family life. This is seen in Ephesians 5.18. You have a command to be filled by means of the Spirit. And as you go from being filled by means of the Spirit in Ephesians 5.18, there are certain things that flow from that that are identified in the subsequent verses by means of various participles. Ephesians 5.19 reads, Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So that's not a private thing. You know, that's not driving down the road in your car, singing a hymn to yourself as you're having a private devotion with God. That is, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to one another. That emphasizes corporate worship. And that shows that singing is important. It is fundamental to corporate worship. Verse 20, giving thanks. Another part is simple. Giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 21 is where we break out of that personal sphere into the family, submitting to one another in the fear of God. 
and then this is going to be developed in terms of how uh, a wife relates to her husband. She submits to her husband. It's to the Lord. The husband is going to uh, lead his wife as uh, and love his wife as Christ loved the church. And then it's going to impact your role as a parent uh, in training and your children, raising them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. It also has an impact on children as kids, as they're growing. They recognize they have responsibility to honor their parents. This is something that never goes away. We always have that responsibility to honor our father and mother, to show respect for them. That doesn't mean that you're still under their authority when you're 25 or 30 years of age, but it does mean that you honor them. That doesn't mean that you... Uh, obey everything they want you to do because you know you all have uh, uh, manipulative parents who are still trying to co- control you when you're 30 years old or 40 years old or 60 years old. They're still making you feel guilty because you don't come over for Sunday lunch or whatever it is. And, but that doesn't mean uh, that you don't honor them in, in certain ways and respect them in certain ways. That doesn't mean you go along with everything they want you to do because you have your own family. And especially if you're a believer, you know there's going to be some differences as an adult with, with your parents. But when you are a child at home, then you don't have any, any option. You have under the authority of your parents. So as you grow and mature, you have experiential sanctification that affects you personally in terms of your own walk with the Lord, in terms of how you're dealing with the sin nature operational in your life, and then it's going to affect family. Third, it affects your relationship. Well, let's skip to the next area. In terms of your uh, work environment, and that's outlined further down in Ephesians chapter uh, chapter 6, that... Bond servants, slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart as to Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men. See, this if this is while it's addressed to slaves, it's even more true if you're there in a voluntary capacity. See, none of you are slaves, you may think you are, but you're not. You have your work environment, and in that work environment, you're there not, you're not working for your immediate employer. You're not working for your boss. You are working as to the Lord, and so that everything you do is to be performed as if the Lord was asking you to do that. And that takes your, the, the quality of your work to a, another level. So personal spiritual life is going to affect you most immediately in your personal life. Then it's going to work itself out into those other spheres of involvement, family, work. And then fourth, it is going to impact your responsibilities in terms of the fact that you are a citizen of a nation. You all are citizens in the United States of America. And in the United States of America, as a citizen in the United States of America... Uh, we are involved in a representational, I can't spell it this morning, representational uh, republic. It's not really a democracy, although it's been moved that way quite a lot 
Uh, it is a, it's a representational republic. We have a representational form of government. It's based on we the people. We have, therefore, by virtue of being a citizen in this country, certain responsibilities that are thrust upon us in terms of service to our nation. And this brings to bear uh, pol- issues in the realm of political involvement, also in the realm of, of service. This involves uh, service in the military. Uh, some choose to go into government service. Uh, others choose to go into politics. But whether you are a professional politician, I don't mean that in a negative sense, or whether you are just an amateur, which is, includes all of us, we all have responsibilities in terms of uh, our involvement as in this nation. Not simply as Christians. I mean, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, you have a responsibility in this nation. You have a responsibility to vote. And every single one of you should be voting this year. It's amazed how many people don't vote. But you should be voting. That's your responsibility as a member of this body politic, the United States of America. You have other obligations uh, in terms of service. You should be also, if you can and if you're interested, you should be involved in local politics uh, because of its impact as it goes all the way up, up the chain. And there are many things that are going on in this world that, um, that are putting pressure on us as Christians. And so we not only have an involvement nationally as just a citizen of this country, but in terms of being a Christian citizen of this nation, you have a, you should have a heightened sense of responsibility in terms of your involvement. Because we are involved in a global spiritual warfare, a cosmic conflict that often manifests itself in terms of culture wars. And we see that so much, and we hear that phrase today, that we're involved in various culture wars. And this really comes to the forefront when you see the clash between people who have uh, ideas and values and norms and standards based on pure human viewpoint reasoning. And see, human viewpoint can manifest itself in as either liberal politics or conservative politics. Either one can be manifested out of a pure human viewpoint framework. As a believer, you should be operating on divine viewpoint. Divine viewpoint teaches us that we are not of the world, but we are in the world. And therefore, we don't isolate ourselves from what's going on in terms of politics. This is something that uh, happened in f- with a lot of fundamentalists in the early part of the 19th century. They basically disengaged from the political process. And this is why there's been such an issue made since ever since uh, 
uh, Jimmy Carter announced that he was a born-again believer back in about 1976 on the return of the evangelical-slash-fundamentalist to the uh, political fray. And the, you have the moral majority and the Christian bloc and all of this, uh, this discussion. Uh, and, and that has gone from the from a normative application of the principle to the more extreme of what you find in various examples of so-called Christian activism, which goes beyond the pale of, of normal involvement. See, as a believer, divine viewpoint is going to tell you uh, that you have a responsibility and that you should be involved and participate legally within the various structures of government but you don't go beyond the pale of law. You don't get involved in, in blowing up abortion clinics or chaining yourself outside the door of uh, abortion clinics or, or, or whatever the issue may be. You don't get involved with civil disobedience. This is when you are beyond the pale. In fact, the only time that the Bible legitimizes civil disobedience is when the government, and I'm going to put a G here for government, when the government directly tells you by name that you must perform action X, which is contrary to the Word of God. See, these are the examples that you have in Scripture. For example, in Acts 4, when the Sanhedrin tells the apostles, you can't preach the gospel. See, they're being told to do something that specifically violates a specific mandate of God. Now, I've known... Some Christians who think that uh, the income tax system is unjust. So they come along and they say, well, God doesn't want me to participate in something unjust, so I'm not going to participate in the, it's wrong for me to pay income tax. Well, (laughs) wouldn't that be nice? Yeah, we'd all like to be able to rationalize like that. that. That's fraudulent reasoning. Jesus said, render under Caesar that which is Caesar. And that's right, the Roman Empire had a just tax system, right? No. See, I mean, it's just silly the kind of asinine ideas Christians come up with. See, the, the government is not telling us to do something that is contrary to God's Word. What a lot of people do is they'll extrapolate some doctr- so-called doctrinal principle, and then they'll use that to justify some kind of disobedience. Now, the pattern in Scripture is always the government is specifically mandating a, a, an action, either don't do this or do this. And the Bible, on the other hand, specifically says you are to do or not do X, just the opposite. And so we always have to obey God rather than man. But th- those have to be specific mandates or prohibitions in the Scripture, not generalized principles that we've just extrapolated from the Scripture, because then it's too open to uh, individual opinion. Over here we sit in divine viewpoint. We need to understand our ideas and the importance of, uh, of, of uh, divine viewpoint in formulating the ideas and values that we hold that in turn operating from a biblical worldview that develops from divine viewpoint, we're going to develop a biblical worldview. And out from that biblical worldview, we're going to make decisions and we're going to cast votes. See, the secularist comes along and says, no, you, you have to cut God completely out of the uh, of, of the 
marketplace of ideas. God can't address these things. And I mentioned this in the earlier hour, that this last week, uh, last couple of days, we went down to Washington, D.C. for the uh, meeting. Apparently, they meet every other year of the Concerned Women of America, where we learned a lot of interesting things and saw different things that were going on and that they were involved in in trying to influence government from a biblical worldview. And there's nothing wrong with that. The goal is not wrong. Sometimes methodology may be wrong. And I'm not saying their methodology is wrong. But there are some Christian groups, of course, who adopt uh, illegitimate methodology, and they forget that a right thing has to be done in a right way. A right thing done in a wrong way is just as wrong as a wrong thing done in a right way or a wrong thing done in a wrong way. No, the right thing has to be done in the right way. And so there are legitimate ways to be involved to influence government. And if we are believers, we have to recognize that we are involved in these culture wars. And the more our culture as a whole drifts away from its historical Judeo-Christian foundation, the more polarized this nation is going to become. And the more the majority becomes those who are operating on human viewpoint, whether liberal or conservative human viewpoint, the more there is going to be a battle between those of us who are operating on divine viewpoint and those who are operating on human viewpoint. And uh, we have a responsibility within the structure of how our government is laid out as a participatory republic that we're to participate in government and we are to influence legislators, we're to write letters, we're to uh, become involved in political campaigns, working for uh, various uh, political candidates in order to ensure that to the best degree as possible, we have our liberties preserved so that we can continue to freely teach the word, freely uh, proclaim the gospel, send out missionaries, and that God is not excluded from the marketplace of ideas. This is crucial. This is important because there are those who, as I said uh, in, in the first hour, those who want to completely marginalize the divine viewpoint worldview. And there can be no liberty apart from a worldview that proceeds from the Bible. Liberty without the Bible will show up as tyranny of something, always. Because liberty only comes when you are in right relationship with God. Because ultimately that which enslaves man is sin. And unless you are operating on a worldview which understands the nature of sin and the bondage of sin, you can't deal with it properly. Now, that doesn't mean that you cite Scripture and verse when you're writing a codification of laws or when you're building a form of government. But as we know from a study of our own American history, those who were our founding fathers operated and functioned out of a biblical worldview, and they understood the depravity of man, that men were sinners, and that unless you put certain limitations on man, that eventually the uh, branches of government, those involved, would move in the direction of tyranny and seeking to take away liberty from the people 
and from citizens. But the concept they had of liberty was not an abstract concept of liberty, which derived from pure empiricism, but it was a concept of liberty that was originally developed from the scriptures. And you can trace this idea back through the Puritans that came over here, and many of the Presbyterians and and Protestants that came out of the Reformation because it was in the matrix of the Protestant Reformation and out of that movement that the men and women in, in Europe and in England developed their understanding of liberty and freedom. It wasn't something that they just developed or extrapolated uh, autonomously. This is, uh, you go back and you read in Greek literature and you read perhaps Plato's Republic and other, other works that dealt with, with government, you don't get this kind of freedom that we have here. It can only come out of the, out of a framework that is, that is, uh, established through the scripture. That doesn't mean we're establishing a Christian government. That doesn't mean we're establishing a theocracy. But what it means is that if the Bible is what it claims to be, and God created the structures of the world the way they are, and that God established certain social rules, social laws, which we call establishment principles, are divine establishment, divine institutions, volition or personal accountability, marriage, family, government, and independent nations. That if we understand that God established those principles for believer and unbeliever alike, then we know that there can't be order, stability, and free, true freedom unless those, are, those things are protected. And if those things break down, then everything else will break down. But see, if you're a pagan, if you reject the Bible completely, then you look at those social structures as just the pragmatic developments of human thought. They are human in origin, and so therefore they can be manipulated and changed. So immediately you're, you see that a, a biblical Christian is in a hundred is 180 degrees opposite his secular counterpart. Even though uh, there are some secularists out there that would believe in the sanctity of marriage and for whatever reason, pragmatic reason, they would argue that that marriage should be held uh, to be between a man and a woman and you should not allow for polygamy, you should not allow for homosexual marriage. The problem is that that they're, they're not arguing from a sound base. They're arguing from a, just as shaky a base as, as the liberal is. Only as a believer can you look at life in terms of reality because we have reality defined for us by God. And to say that we can't operate on the basis of our religious beliefs, as a a senator from the state just to the north of us said one time in a speech, shows that he doesn't really believe what he claims he believes in terms of religion. A religion that doesn't impact the way you live on a day-to-day basis, including how you vote, including how you how you purchase things, including how you dress, the Scripture says, is a religion that is irrelevant and has no value or meaning whatsoever. And see, the problem with many on the left is that they're, like the senator from Massachusetts, their religion has no value. It is irrelevant. It is meaningless to them. So they can't understand anyone who thinks that that the the Bible uh, has value and significance and meaning and is absolute truth. 
Now, all of this is to say that as a, as a believer, that part of that process of sanctification and purification is that we have responsibilities to apply the Word of God in every area of relationship that we have, whether it's our, our immediate personal life, whether it's our family life, whether it's our work environment, or our environment in the nation. And this is fundamentally the assumption that underlies the, the thinking in the um, Concerned Women for America. And there were a lot of men there. There were there were men and women who were concerned women. Now, I spent a lot of time reflecting while I was sitting there listening to a lot of good speakers uh, give us a lot of information, different things that are going on around the country. And um, we had a, uh, by invitation only, uh, briefing from various staff members of the White House on Friday morning. And there, was, there wasn't anything really new that I learned, nothing really uh, earth-shattering there, nothing that you wouldn't pick up uh, watching uh, Fox News or listening to Rush Limbaugh or, you know, a conservative commentator, um, where you have a little more perspective of the truth. And, but there were some things that we picked up in some of the different sessions uh, yesterday that were, that were interesting. But as I sat there, I kept thinking, okay, what is the relationship? What's the impact of belief? How is a believer to, and, and the church to be involved? Now, I don't think a local church as a local church should be involved in politics. That's out. A uh, local church does not marshal itself to go uh, get on the bandwagon to uh, get involved politically. I, I don't think there... Uh, you know, other other than to ch- encourage people, they need to vote, and uh, in some churches they have voter registration drives, and I don't necessarily think that. I mean, we don't do that, and I don't think, but I don't think that's inherently wrong. It's when you start getting in the pulpit and saying, "Okay, we need to organize to do this, organize to do that." I think what a pastor teaches should provide an environment and a framework within which people, under and depending on their relationship with the Lord can go out and get involved because they've, they're well taught in the scriptures as to what the divine viewpoint is. And so then their involvement can be more effective. And some people can be more involved. Some people are less involved depending on other responsibilities in life. But believers have to be involved. They have to, and they have to be involved from the framework of their own Christian beliefs. This is part of what Jesus is referring to. When he talks, uses the metaphor salt and light in Matthew chapter 5. He says to the disciples, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Second metaphor, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Both of these have to do with the fact that as a believer... You impact your country. Now, you impact it in various ways through those same uh, spheres of influence I've just mentioned in terms of application. You influence your nation in terms of your own spiritual life and spiritual growth. As goes the believer, so goes the nation. We saw, see this principle established back in Genesis when the angels are about to go destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and, God, and Abraham begins to uh, argue with God and say, well... How many righteous people uh, need to be there before you uh, avoid this judgment? If there are 15 righteous there, would you not judge the nation? If there are 10 righteous, if there are five, just what's the cutoff point, God? And uh, Lot and his family were there, and the Lord said, well, we'll remove them 
That is, remove the believers, everybody else is lost, and then we'll judge the nation. principle there is that, that even an unbelieving pagan culture such as Sodom and Gomorrah were blessed by association by the presence of the um, backslidden Lot, the reversionist Lot. Even though he is not going anywhere spiritually, the fact that you have a righteous man, positionally righteous, in that city meant blessing by association. So what you do with your own spiritual life has an impact on the nation. But further than that, your impact is a family. This is what the psalmist refers to when he says that blessed is the man who has many children, uh, who has a, uh, blessed is the man who who has a child and whose quiver is is filled with them. The idea there, the metaphor there, the quiver being filled with with arrows and a a person who's blessed with many children is that just as a warrior influences the battle by being able to have plenty of ammunition and send as many arrows as possible into the enemy, so a family that has children and teaches them and trains them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and teaches them how to think biblically, sends them out into the world, the community, the marketplace of, of, the, of the nation, and they, those children influence and have an impact in the world. And that's your responsibility as a parent, is to train your children so that they can go out and impact the world from a biblical uh, framework from a biblical worldview. That is part of being salt of the earth. Salt has a preservation aspect. And as believers, you don't just have that preservative aspect simply by being present and positive to the Word. You also have it in this nation by being involved to the degree that you can in the political process and to be informed and to write letters and to influence congressmen and to be involved in political action groups to whatever level you can to influence these things because there's legislation uh, even now in the uh, in the state house in Connecticut to have uh, uh, to allow for uh, homosexual marriage and how many of us have called our representatives or said anything or written a letter or indicated that we're opposed to that. And see, if you're a believer and you keep your mouth shut at times like that, what good is your faith? What impact is it having? Uh, I'm not talking about going down and marching on the state house. I'm talking about simply writing a letter to express your opinion and to challenge your representatives to do the right thing and 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 give them a good reason not simply because it's biblical but because that's that's your viewpoint this will break down marriage and marriage is the foundation of society you know learn how to present a biblical viewpoint without arguing from the bible you know don't sound like some radical backwoods fundamentalist bible thumper uh present a case that will sway the thinking of even a pagan learn how to do that present it in such a way that that it has a has impact and and this does yesterday down in Louisiana due to a lot of work that was done by some of the members of the of uh, CWA uh, they had a passed a law that, that was taken to the voters and they passed an amendment to the Louisiana state constitution to prohibit not only same sex marriage but also to uh, prohibit civil unions and the recognition of civil unions because a civil union is nothing more than a little word game to get around calling it a marriage. It's a marriage de facto, if not de jure. 
So uh, this is the impact from believers who have gotten involved legitimately in the process of government. And this is part of the of our sanctification and application of doctrine into the broader sphere of the community uh, around us. Matthew 5, uh, 13 through 16 emphasizes that we are to, verse 16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify God. In other words, it needs to be evidence. You don't just hide it and keep it private. This was the quote I referred to this morning from uh, Solzhenitsyn's work, the Gulag Ar- Archipelago, where he quotes this poem written by a by a young girl who said uh, that we have the freedom to pray as long as God is the only one who hears. See, this is the agenda of the secular fundamentalist in America, is that you can be free to worship, you can be free to go to church, you can be free to have your beliefs about homosexuality being a sin, you can have uh, your beliefs about uh, illicit pornography and all of these things, but just keep it to yourself. Don't express it out loud. Don't try to let your ideas or values influence uh, the body politic. So who's the ultimately, their values are going to win. So the question is, whose values should be allowed? A value that, con- that derives from the God of the universe, the creator God of the universe, who is the who has revealed absolute truth to us, or the values of pagans who are in rebellion against God. I mean, those are the only options, folks. There's no such thing as neutrality. Your values either come from one place or the other, and it's only within the framework of biblical Christianity that you have freedom. Now, there's a lot of religiosity out there, religious Christianity that's not biblical, that has prohibited freedom. You saw a thousand years of this under the Roman Catholic Church during the medieval period, where there was no freedom. This is why Protestants developed so many concepts and categories of understanding what genuine freedom was all about. And when you have somebody who's biblical, they can establish, as we had in the early part of this uh, this nation, those who established freedom. Now, I know it's true that when, when you had the early colonies, there were groups that came over, and the Puritans were the same way. We're going to have freedom now, but you can't be a Baptist. So then Roger Williams left and, and went down and established the colony in Rhode Island. And he was a Baptist for less than six months, by the way. Just thought you'd want to know that. And then he went on. He just kind of drifted from one belief to another. He was kind of an anarchist, ultimately. And you had others. But but as as the, the, the things developed, what you had that grew out of that is an understanding of respect for different viewpoints and freedom, uh, of re- freedom to express your different religious views without the state interfering. But when the state comes along and says you can't express your religious views in the marketplace of ideas, that's interference. That's establishing secularism as a religion. And there was a Supreme Court decision back in the early 70s that clearly that, that stated that secular humanism was as much a religious belief as Christianity, Judaism, Islam, or any other viewpoint. So you're all, everything is ultimately boils down to a religious viewpoint. Everything. You can't get away from it. And the issue is, in the competing realm of, ide- realm of ideas, ultimately, which, 
which religious system is going to provide the, the framework. And it's only within the framework of biblical Christianity that you've had genuine freedom develop in, in world history. It has never developed out of a matrix of either legalistic, uh, ritual, religious Christianity. It never developed out of Eastern Orthodoxy, Roman Catholicism. It never came out of Islam. It never came out of Buddhism, Hinduism. It never came out of animism, spiritism, polytheism. These, all of these other views never, ever produced a view of freedom that gave genuine freedom to individuals because they didn't start with an understanding of individuals as created in the image and likeness of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And only in that framework, on the basis of that reality, can you have true, genuine freedom and liberty. So, today we are challenged in a number of areas. We're challenged on this whole homosexual issue. This is going to be the major battlefield socially in the, for the next 10 years. And I fear that we're going to lose it because that has been the trend, the downward spiral in this nation uh, for the last 150 years. Since the middle of the 19th century, our freedoms have been gradually eroding and the forces of e- evil, uh, 19th century religious liberalism, uh, Darwinism, the psychology, uh, the secular education ideas of Dewey, all of these things have worked together in order to erode the biblical Christian foundation of this nation, to erode our freedoms and our, our liberties, so that today we have many, many fewer liberties and freedoms than our parents had when they were children. I have a friend down in Houston who has told the story. In fact, he received an award from the NRA, which is another one of the uh, better uh, political action groups to get involved with. <clears throat> Just thought I'd throw that out, no extra charge. Anyway, he, he tells the story. I've, I've heard him tell it many times. He's a great raconteur, and he tells a story about how... Uh, when he was a young boy, he worked at a at a gas station in Franklin, Texas, which is up where his grandparents lived, and and um, he would catch the train from Houston up towards Austin, and and he would go there during the summer, and he would he would um, work in a gas station. I forget what he got paid every week. It was like five dollars a day or a week or whatever. But but he had his eye on a twenty-two rifle. And he knew how that he had to work, how much he had to work, how much money he had to save before he would be able to purchase this $59 rifle. And so I think he made like $5 a week, and at the end of, of 12 weeks, he had $60. And so he went into the uh, uh, hardware store there where he was buying the 22, and he came in with, with the $60, $60 because it was $59 for the rifle and a dollar for a box of shells. And every day or every week throughout the summer, he'd gone into the hardware store and he'd eyed that, that 22 just to make sure that it was still there. I mean, he was like 12 years old at the time. And make sure it was still there and that he would be able to buy it, not realizing, of course, that, you know, the hardware store owner could get another one for him. So at the end of the summer, he came in and the, the hardware store owner was so impressed with his discipline that he had saved the money that he gave him a box of shells. So it was only $59 for the rifle. So there was no taxes back then. See, that was another element of freedom. 
no sales tax. And so he plunked down his $59, got the rifle, and 12 years of old, he didn't have to sign anything, show his driver's license, he didn't have to uh, fill out any government forms. And then when he went back home to Houston, he uh, had that 22 in his hand, a box of shells in his pocket, went and got on the train. And carrying his 22, and rode the train back to Houston, and then got off the train and and uh, walked home carrying his his 22. Nobody said a thing. See, that was real freedom. We don't have that kind of freedom anymore, and it's because uh, uh, of the erosion of understanding of freedom, the erosion of Christianity, and the impact of Bible believing Christians on on politics in this country. And that doesn't mean you go out there and you're saying, this is a position we take because we're a Christian. Same principle I tell people when, if, if you decide that, let's say that you, you decide that as, as a believer that you think that you should not partake of um, a sugar or beer or scotch or smoke or whatever it may be, these are areas the Bible doesn't specifically address, don't ever say, I don't drink because I'm a Christian. Because the Bible doesn't mandate that as a Christian you don't drink. Don't ever identify, I'm a Republican because I'm a Christian. No, the Republican Party is not Christian. You know, there may be, the Republican Party may be, uh, may have more elements in their platform that align with the establishment principles of Scripture, and next year, maybe it's another party that has more biblical, but they have principles that don't align with Scripture. You know, you can't align it, but you, what you do as a believer is you recognize that you have the five divine institutions, you understand what they are and how they're applied, and, and uh, you, you, you pick candidates who are most consistent with that. You're never going to find one that is perfect, but you have to understand it from a biblical Biblical framework. So this is part of our responsibility. We've got, as I pointed out a minute ago, we've got a number of social issues. And the Bible addresses social issues. And so from the framework of biblical norms and standards, you need to get involved because you as a believer beyond anybody else know that if this country starts legalizing same-sex marriage, that the institution of marriage is going to break down. That means the family breaks down. We already have all kinds of problems because personal accountability and responsibility is broken down. And this leads to a fragmentation and polarization and a complete uh, implosion of a culture. And as a Christian, we know that we need to be involved. We need to fight this as individuals, not as a church per se, but as an individual. This is also applies to any number of other issues that face us socially. you got issues with with um, uh, the, the uh, uh, sex slave trade, which is going on. I mean, we had a report on that uh, yesterday, and, and there are uh, so many things going on across this country where they are uh, taking uh, young girls and young boys in these third world countries, and they're promising them a job in some country or United States or wherever, and once they get a hold of them, then they take away their passport. They they uh, virtually kidnap them, take them into a foreign country. Take usually they come in through Mexico into the United States, and they go and they're they're uh, street prostitutes, or they're in some uh, nice looking uh, four hundred thousand dollar home in your neighborhood, or and you don't even know they're there. They bring them in in the middle of the night, and then they have a 
uh, house of prostitution there, and they're beaten until they submit. And uh, it's just a horrible thing, but this is going on, and it's uh, made a made some uh, presence in the in the press. There's an article in New York Times, Sunday New York Times Magazine, a few months ago. I saw a brief report just last night on on Fox News, right before I went to bed, on uh, this that's going on, and it, it, these kinds of things need to be addressed and brought to the attention of public officials because what's happened is that a lot of Public officials and law enforcement officers don't don't acknowledge this, don't recognize uh, that it's going on simply because the information is not available. So there are a number of social issues, the, the homosexual issue, there's issues related to prisons, there's issues related to education, issues related to curriculum, textbooks, taxation, all kinds of things. And yet as a believer and only believers have a real frame of reference for understanding reality to be involved. So I think there's a right way to be involved. There's also wrong ways to be involved. But that's part of the sanctification process. And so I would encourage you to be involved in some of these different groups. Uh, there's a lot of different position papers you can get on the NRA website. You can go to the uh, Concerned Women for America. I think it's uh, www.cwfa.org. Uh, there's other conservative Christian groups out there that have positions. That doesn't mean I agree with everything. There are certainly positions they take that I don't necessarily agree with and some issues that I don't agree with. But that goes back to what I said at the beginning, is that we, can, we don't just isolate ourselves. We recognize that there are different groups of Christians and different people that are making an impact, and they are working uh, very well in certain restricted Areas. There are many, we see the same thing with the, the whole issue of creation and evolution. There are certain interpretations that are taken on some passages by uh, people, for example, at the Institute for Creation Research that I don't necessarily agree with. But there's so much there that I do agree with and that is valuable and helpful that we need to take advantage of that kind of in, information. But this is all part of what Jesus Christ is doing as part of that priest judge in the life of the believer. You're learning, you're eventually going to rule and reign with Jesus Christ. You're going to have political responsibilities. So what are you doing today to train to rule and reign with Jesus Christ, to function as a priest, to function as a judge over angels? So all of this develops discernment, involvement, and it's legitimate involvement. I'm not talking about Christian activism. but I'm talking about legitimate, significant involvement in the political process. Because, folks, when we wake up one day and we don't have the freedoms and liberties we once had, we're not, we're not going to have anyone else to blame but ourselves because we failed to be involved with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study the Word, this opportunity to recognize that, that we are to have an impact and the primary way, of course, that we have that impact is just through our own personal spiritual life, our, our walk by the Holy Spirit, our advance towards spiritual maturity. Too often other things can become a distraction to that. But nevertheless, as part of that, we have, as part of our spiritual life, we have responsibilities in terms of our families, in terms of our spouses, in terms of our children, in terms of their education, in terms of what influences their education, in terms of our nation. And so we need to be involved in these things. We need to have prayer groups that specifically focus on prayer for the nation. Uh, people need to be informed as to what is going on in Washington and Hartford and other states. Father, we pray that you would watch over this nation, 
that you would continue to raise up uh, men and women who have a divine viewpoint framework, who can, uh, from a balanced, healthy perspective, influence the decision-making process in government so that our liberties and our freedoms may be preserved. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. He paid the penalty so that sin is no longer the issue. The issue is what do you believe about Jesus Christ? If you trust in him as your Savior, you will have eternal life. And it's just a matter of believing or trusting that Christ died for your sins and that he paid the penalty. Everything is done. At the instant you believe, omniscient God knows, looks on the heart and knows what you believe. And at that instant you're regenerated. You are You receive the perfect righteousness of Christ and are declared justified before God, and you are given an eternal life that can never be lost. Father, we just uh, thank you for again for our nation, for our freedoms, and we pray that you would continue to preserve them for us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.